in fact, Robert Moore, one of my favorite authors, talks about liminal space and the process of initiation being the equivalent of psycho-spiritual death and dismemberment. <laughs> what a beautiful line. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Liminal Space. Today I'm in discussion with Dr. Anna Rubenstein. Anna is an internationally recognized expert on adolescent development and rites of passage with 30 years experience as a medical doctor, counselor, author, mentor, speaker, and workshop facilitator. He's the founder of the Rites of Passage Institute, whose programs have been attended by more than 200,000 young people around the world, which helps boys and girls to successfully make a safe and healthy transition to adulthood, to strengthen their sense of self, discover their potential, and create a healthy vision for the future. Anna also has a big interest in the concept of a liminal space, which of course is the name of this podcast, so it seemed only natural to reach out to, to Anna to have a chat about his ongoing work. So it's a big pleasure to welcome Dr. Anna Rubenstein to a liminal space. Hi, Anna. Hey, nice to be here. My favorite words in the world, actually, liminal space. What's a liminal space to you? Well, it comes down to this idea that we all need to keep evolving and growing. And, and I see life as like a staircase and we're all progressively moving up that staircase from baby to child to adolescent to adult, maybe parent, grandparent, elder. And, and each of those steps on the staircase represent a different way of seeing the world. So how I see the world as a child where it's basically about me and personal pleasure and I'm the centre of the universe is different from how I will see the world as an adult, hopefully, where I understand that I'm part of a community and I have responsibilities and that sort of thing. And in order to uh, create that shift in how we see the world, our, our psyche, which contains our core beliefs and values, has to change. So the psyche of a child is different from the psyche of an adult. And most of the time our psyche is closed and we have a rigid set of beliefs and values. For it to change, we actually need to open our psyche so that some things can come in and some things can go out. And that particular time when the psyche is open is called liminal space. So do you mind if I jump in? How do you define psyche then? Uh, well, it comes from the Greek word, which means our soul or our mind. So I would talk about psyche as I have a box of belief systems in my head, let's say, and those belief systems and values run my life. So I have a belief system around exercise being good. So every day I will go out and I will look for somewhere to exercise. Uh, I have a belief system that young men um, uh, are interesting and fun. So if I'm walking down the street and there's a group of young men, I'll walk through them and, you know, say day and see if someone's up to something interesting. Um, you know, I, I have a, all these different belief systems and they, they make up my psyche. Um, that may change, you know, will change through life and, um, the, the psyche is that box and most of the time the box is closed but as I said periodically it opens 
as we transform from one stage in life to the next. And in that period of time when it's open, some of my beliefs will go out and my values and some new ones will come in. So my psyche will change. And then back to the, back to the liminal space, this is this space that allows the psyche to change? Is that how you, how you see Well, it? the psyche is open in liminal space. So, so there are certain conditions that will open the psyche. Um, so for example, um, a, a classic one might be having a baby, whether it's me having a baby or a partner having a baby. But before I have a baby, I'm a single man. I basically look after myself, blah, blah. And then there's a period of time while, you know, I remember when I had children, while my partner was in labor, that I would call liminal space. And during that time, my psyche was open and my belief system about I'm the only person in the world who matters completely changed as all of a sudden, oh my God, there's a baby coming out and then there's a baby here. And, and, and from that point on, I had someone else who I had to look after and wanted to look after. And not even one person, but both my partner and my baby. So it's a fundamentally different way of seeing the world to I'm on my own, to I'm really part of a family unit with a baby that I need to look after, a partner that I have to, you know, also be looking after. And, and that space, which was predominantly during the time that she was in labor, was liminal space. And it's also a time when I can review my life and my priorities and all sorts of stuff. And then it closes again and we go home, we've got the baby and, you know, we go on with life, but life is different. Now I have a child, now I have a partner who is the mother of that child and, you know, it's different. And what was your, you say that's your favourite word, favourite term. How, how did that become your favourite term? Well, I started running programs 25 years ago for boys becoming young men. And um, I realised that we had a huge problem where we weren't creating rites of passage for our boys, uh, which would have been done for tens of thousands of years in Indigenous communities and traditional communities. And because we weren't running those rites of passage, these boys were growing up and becoming adults in men's bodies, but their psyches were still those of boys. So they were still thinking about themselves. They were still prioritizing themselves. Um, they still saw women as possessions or, or you know, something that they could treat in a certain way. Um, and that, that, then I also saw that these boys were running the world, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I wrote a model between the different, about the difference between the psyche of a boy and the psyche of a man, where the psyche of a boy is I'm the centre of the universe, I need constant acknowledgement, I can never be wrong, I'm going to live forever, and I want a mother. You know, and that's fine for a six or eight-year-old, but when we end up with adult men who think they're the centre of the universe, need constant acknowledgement, can never be wrong, um, think they're going to live forever and are looking for a mother, it's a big problem. And, and, you know, I think some of our world leaders potentially are in that model. And, and I believe we need men who understand that they're part of, a, part of a community, they have responsibility for others, 
They have to be able to acknowledge when they're wrong. We have to know that we're not mortal. We're actually going to die, and that affects how we live our lives. We're not looking for a mother in our lives. We're looking for genuine relationship with everything that comes with relationship. So I recognised we weren't going through that shift and the impact it was having. At the same time, I was working as a doctor and I was really seeing clearly around this stuff. And so we started running rites of passage and I realised that in order to create the shift, we had to open people's psyches, which meant we had to create liminal space. And I realised that there were different ways we could do that. And the way that we were using was by taking men and boys, fathers and sons or boys and older men, out in the bush for a week, leaving behind their phones and any electronic devices and sharing real stories about our lives and our, the things that had impacted on us, creating healthy challenges for these boys, getting them to create a vision for the future as to how they wanted to be, including what behaviours they needed to leave behind from their childhood, and then honouring and recognising that each of these boys are different and they each have an individual gift, genius, spirit, and that by us as older men recognising those gifts and that genius and that spirit, we were speaking to who they were, you know, at a deep level and, and what they had to bring to the community. And when we did these things with these boys, they changed, they transformed. And after the camps, these young men were different. And I see these young men, some of them 15, 20 years later, and they tell me consistently that as a result of this camp that we did, they changed, they are different. So we created liminal space and we changed in a positive way their vision of life, their version of life. And the liminal space that you created, is that a physical space? Is that actually removing people from their daily environment and taking them into the camp? Or is it something on a sort of a, a psychological level? What's well, both. So we created the physical environment because it's very hard to create liminal space in a person's day-to-day -day environment. And when Indigenous communities created rites of passage, the first thing they did was separate the group the individual or the group from the community, from the day-to-day -day life. But you have to do more than just separate people. You have to separate them, then you have to set up the conditions to create liminal space, which for us is nature, sharing of stories, challenges, vision, the honouring, those things all create the liminal space and the changes in the psyche. Hmm. And can you give an idea of one or two of those actual um, challenges or tasks or, or things that the, the, sure. the fathers yeah, and yeah. sons would experience? Yeah, it's not a secret. Like my vision is for this work to be mainstream and for it to be mainstream, people need to know what happens or else they can't do it. It remains a mystery and then it doesn't do anything. So the first element of stories you know, getting the men to share stories of the events that have had the greatest impact in their lives and to do that in front of the boys. So getting the men sharing stories about what it was like when they were the age of the boys and what their relationship was like with their own father. And half the men cry talking about their own fathers when they were boys. And 
It's very powerful. And maybe one in 10 men has a great story about their dad and the relationship they had. Now, when the boys hear these stories, and we're not telling the boys how to be as fathers, we just share our stories. But then at the end, when we say to the boys, if you become a father, you know, what would you like your son to say about you? Hmm. And they say, oh, I want my son to say that I was there for him, that I went and watched him play sport, that he could come and talk to me about anything, that I was a, you know, I was a mate, I was a friend to him, that I was really present in his life. And, and we see from that that uh, that's actually getting into these boys' liminal spaces, that that is... You know, they're more likely to be that as a father. And um, we get the men talk about loss and death, people who were in their lives and who are not there anymore. And the boys hear that and they see men cry and they realise it's okay to be vulnerable. And they realise that death is actually part of life. And, and that's very important to them. So sharing of stories and then creating challenges. The challenges can be all sorts of things. A challenge can be just to say to the boys, what is an aspect of your life that no longer serves you? What is something that if you're going to become a good man, you need to let go of because it's just not, it's not right anymore. And, and, and we might say to the boys, and, and rather than telling us, let, here's some clay and you can make it in a figure or, you know, different ways of accessing, or they could tell us. And it's extraordinary what they say. They'll say, oh, I know that... Um, I'm too selfish. I'm still really selfish. I know that I don't help out my mum or anyone around the house. I just sit back and let everything be done. I know that I'm, I get jealous. I know that I lie when I'm wrong. Instead of admitting it, I lie. And, and in the, that, that's hugely challenging. But when the boys actually name that, it has an extraordinary impact because now it's out in the open and now they can change it. Hmm. And we might put them out in the bush for a period of time on their own to think about life, to think about what sort of man they want to be. We might leave them there overnight. We might leave them there a few hours. It doesn't matter. It's, it's you know, being out. That's a challenge to be in the dark, in the bush, on your own. You know, there are many, many ways. It can be a, it might be an overnight hike. Whatever it is, what I know having been a doctor in emergency for many years is that boys will create their own challenges if we don't create them for them. You know, they'll steal cars or they'll jump their bike over the biggest thing that they can. And if they succeed, they'll just make it bigger. And, you know, they need challenges. And so when we create those challenges for them in an appropriate environment, in liminal space, then they can learn and grow from those challenges. And the interesting thing with all of this is that I believe that liminal space is a fundamental need of people because we can't evolve and grow from one stage in life to the next if we don't have liminal space and because it's not being provided in a natural way and because it's not being facilitated people are trying to create their own and then it's actually not called liminal space it's called liminoid space because it has a negative impact and they're creating it through drugs alcohol risk-taking behaviours, stupid things, which can actually, I'm allowed to swear on this program, can fuck up the rest of their lives. Mm. And we don't want that. We want to create healthy, genuine liminal space. Mm. 
rather than having people go out and create their own liminoid. And when they're, you know, and then they get addictions and health problems. And I mean, our, our world is full of artificial ways of creating supposed liminal space. I can go out and spend $30 and buy a bottle of spirits. Spirits, it's called spirits. And then I can drink these spirits and the spirit gets in me. Well, I think it does. And in that place, I've got it all worked out. I love you all. I'm going to be a good person. I'm this, I'm that. And in the morning, I've just got to hang over. <laughs> and I want the feeling again. So I do it again. And then I become addicted to it. Mm. You know, so it's going to happen. If the question is whether we're going to do it in a healthy way that we grow from or an unhealthy way that actually impacts negatively on us. Wow. It's... Uh... Lots of things to unpack from that uh, passionate speech and keep your passion coming and keep your swearing coming. And, you know, uh, what I'm trying to do with this and this, in, in a sense, my podcast, I wanted to call it a liminal space to bring. I'm now realizing that it's the interaction that's actually interesting. It's this space. It's this hour. It's this moment. It's this coming together. And hopefully at the end of this discussion, you know. We've transitioned ourselves in, in some... Yeah, we might even change your psyche a little bit in doing it. Oh, my psyche. <laughs> you were very welcome to change my psyche. Don't worry yeah. about that. <laughs> and I also, you know, while we're on a roll here, this idea of, you know, liminal or liminoid. So liminal is a intentionally created and ideally community-based facilitated experience, whereas liminoid is a maybe not so intentionally and misunderstood and non-facilitated, also altered space experience. And there are things that can shift in between the two of them. So, um, you know, something that might be liminal for me uh, might be to go out and climb a big mountain. And that might be a life-changing experience for me. And when I'm on the mountain, I, you know, I'm thinking about all sorts of different things and my life, and especially if it's really dangerous and, you know, I could see potential for accident or death. That can absolutely create a liminal space for me and I'll come back different and I'll have made different commitments about life and have different priorities. However, if it's not facilitated or recognised, then I can just become addicted to mountain climbing and, and all that sort of stuff and just go higher and higher and more and more. And then as I get older, I'm still looking for that rush. And then it, instead of becoming li liminal, it becomes liminoid and, that, and it's like the mountains start to control me. And, and I might do it until I have a bad accident or die. So the same thing may be liminal, but then can shift into liminoid. You know, drugs, psychedelics can be used to create liminal space. There are indigenous communities that did that, but they didn't do it with children and they didn't do it every Saturday night just to go out. They did it in the right way, with huge respect, facilitated as a particular event to create a shift in a person. But it was done very much in a particular way. In our communities, because we, you know, there's so much access to drugs, you see people take them and go, oh, this is fantastic. Now I want to take it every month, every week, every day. In fact, it's the only way I can actually front up to people and have conversations as if I'm stoned or drunk or whatever. And that's 
then a very liminoid process that becomes addictive and has all sorts of health issues. Hmm. Um, but done in the right way and respectfully, you know, in adults can have a very different effect. And there are many, many things that can be liminal or if used incorrectly, a liminoid. And what you reference the, uh, these indigenous cultures that did and still do in many parts of the world and also in Australia, um, have these ceremonies and, and ways of accessing liminal space. What, what research did you do or how did you come to your thinking and understanding of setting these tasks for, for these boys and what made, or, and also what kind of made you change your shift from a medical doctor into, into what you're doing now? Yeah, so um, great questions. There's, also, that's a, it's a big question. So um, the, the whole thing about creating a transition, and I started with the boys to young men and then looked at Indigenous communities all over the world and discovered uh, that the stages of a rite of passage were always the same. So the person would be separated from the community, they go through a transformational process and then they would return and be seen differently. So if they came back as a young man and they might be gone for a week, they might be gone for a month, a year, some communities, three or five years, the boys would be gone and they wouldn't come back for five years. But when they came back, they were clearly seen as young men and they would be marked and it might be a tattoo or a scar or different clothes or something and, and it would be clearly recognised that they were young men and then they would have to act with the, the responsibilities of a young man and they would be given the privileges of a young man. So in my experience in a lot of the Indigenous communities, the kids run free and they, you know, there might be meetings going on and the kids would be in there climbing around, climbing over people, getting cuddles, whatever it is. As kids, they were really allowed to explore and everything like that. But, but there was a point when they went through their initiation or their rite of passages when it was like, okay, this part of your life is over. Now you're joining the community in a, in a different way and you'll be coming back as a young adult and we need you, we need your gifts, we need your contribution and we can't have you acting like a kid anymore. It was a very clear delineation and the rite of passage was set up to create that delineation. And by the way, when we don't have it, we end up with teenagers still acting as kids and just doing stupid things. But we end up with adults, adult men, same thing, just completely irresponsible, stupid things. So they had these three stages of a separation, the transformational process, and then reintegrating and coming back to the community differently. And that, those stages, those steps would go through a person's life. So the role of an elder was considered to be different from the role of an adult. And whereas an, el an adult was out there sort of building their empire and changing the world and doing all that stuff that the adults like and tend to do, the elder was then not in that mode, but more in a mentoring mode and more supporting the young and, and sharing stories and passing on wisdom rather than trying to hold on to power. Anyway, 
I recognised and I read about these three stages of separation, transition and return and I became very interested in what, what has to happen in that middle stage of transition or transformation for the psyche to open and it to change. And I recognised and, and I identified that the four key elements were sharing of stories, creation of a challenge, a vision for the future, and this recognition and honouring of the gifts and the spirit of the individual person. And actually there's a, there's a fifth stage which is a marking or even a wound that the person going through the rite of passage experiences. And I'm really exploring the marking and wound idea. So I've just been through a big rite of passage with my mother passing away. Uh, about three months ago and I came down to Melbourne and I spent a month in the hospital holding her hand until she passed away. And clearly that's been a rite of passage for me. Clearly I've transformed. I know it. I am fundamentally different now than I was before she passed away. And in that time and in the period afterwards at the funeral and everything, there were all these stories shared about my mother, which was amazing. And obviously there were big challenges around the whole process. And there was a vision for how's life going to be afterwards. Um, and a whole recognition of the spirit of my mother. And, and, and I also found that in me, different things came out that had never come out before. You know, looking after my parents, genuinely looking after my parents for the first time. Um, and just seeing things and really realising that death is so much more part of life than I'd been led to believe. But then there's also a wounding or a mark. And for me, the wounding is I've lost my mother. And that is a deep wound that still brings me to tears, still brings huge grief. And, and I don't have control of that. You know, it just happens. Um, and it's important to note that the rites of passage that people go through will be different at different stages in their lives. So there's always sharing of stories, but they're done differently in different stages and challenges. You know, the challenges that boys need, are, you know, are often physical, out there challenges, facing death and facing fear. Whereas for me at 56, I don't need those challenges. My, my challenges are much more psychological and emotional and spiritual. Um, and, you know, often the young, and by the way, this is equally as important, you know, girls went through rites of passage uh, with the same frequency as boys, but in the Indigenous communities, they were different because the, the process for a girl was different from that of a boy. Um, but often the boys and the girls would be marked. So they might get a, another scar or a tattoo or different jewellery or different clothes that they could wear. But they were, or, or, or they may actually be wounded. In some of them, they knocked out a tooth. Or, 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 or you know, they were, could be quite violent in what happened. Um, but from that time, you knew you were different. Like, Children didn't have those marks. And once those marks were put on you, 
you knew you were in a different stage of your life. It was very clear. We don't have that anymore. And so there's this massive confusion. We've even had to create a whole new stage of teenagers. Like the word teenager wasn't even coined until the 1950s or something, which is that in-between space. They're not children anymore, but they're not adults. You know, so there's a whole, and that extended teenagers, you know, they can stay teenagers until they're 30, 40 years old or acting like teenagers because we don't have this clear demarcation, this rite of passage and the liminal space to do that. I would say that not only do we not have that, we actually have got it all confused because you talk about those four steps and then leading to the fifth step. See a lot of people very happy at the first step going straight to the fifth step as far as drinking alcohol and ornamenting their body with tattoos that actually did traditionally mean something and now they're just something to be trendy or to be cool but with actually no you know significance behind any of them um and was your research in so we're both in australia we're in different parts of australia but obviously um you're speaking about not just something that affects australian people and not even let's say western white people you know obviously um these challenges and these liminal spaces and these moments of transition um are being successfully done in many parts of the world and many of the challenges are also being faced in in many other parts of the world. Did your research take you sort of outside of Australia or what was... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and the, the biggest thing for me was that they all did rites of passage and they all used the same elements in the same stages, but they didn't have conferences when they got together and talked about it what they had is thousands of generations of human behavior to observe. And so they all recognize that you've got to change something in your children or the community is going to get destroyed. And they all recognize that there's a point where an adult becomes an elder and that has to be marked. You know, so they, they all recognize that there are these key stages and that if you manage it well, you have a, a, functional social structure. So the idea of rites of passage was to maintain social structure. If you didn't have rites of passage and you had a breakdown of social structure, the risk was you'd get huge polarization, you'd destroy the natural resources of the earth, um, adults would act like children and, and you know try and kill each other and do all sorts of things. Um, you know, basically everything that we're seeing today, <laughs> or a lot of it, would, would happen. And then people would get to the end of their lives and instead of um, being able to manage that well, there'd be enormous fear and denial of death. Um, and that's definitely one of the things that I've seen in, in the scenario with my mother, that we just don't deal with death. Not, we don't even not deal with it badly. We just try and completely deny it. And there are so many things that we deny. And so you know, it, it was definitely what I researched and studied was a global phenomenon that has been lost. And that for me, if we can find healthy ways of bringing it back, would absolutely be a life-changing yeah. process. I think this, this fear of death is something I've been not 
in myself thinking about, but thinking about on a global level, we're now in Corona times. And, and I believe that so many of us are being challenged perhaps for the first time to confront our own mortality. And that with leaders that maybe are increasingly using fear to control people. And now we have this sense that perhaps we could die and we never really wanted to, to, to think about this in our own lives. So it's a really interesting, I mean, I, I absolutely feel that where we are right now um, in a global sense, not just a personal sense, we're, the world is in a very liminal space. Um, Absolutely. We are in a liminal space and we're in a rite of passage. The question is, and we will be different, the world will be different afterwards. Not a question. But the thing is, will we come out of it better or will we come out of it worse? So, you know, when I was in emergency and I'd see kids who would initiate themselves by riding off their cars and killing one of their best mates, that kid grew up because that kid then had to go to court, that kid then had to wear a suit, that kid then had to answer for their behaviour and that kid may well have done jail time. And I've met them, I've worked with them. And so that was a rite of passage that went as badly pretty much as it could go. Uh, and I also know that we can be creating very special rites of passage for our, our kids. And, and this rite of passage that we're going through at the moment with COVID is an amazing opportunity to review what's been going on, to look at how we can be better people, to look at how we can look after our world better, to take responsibility for the fact that we have created COVID through all of our actions as a population. So if it went well, it could be an amazingly positive experience. My concern is that instead we're creating enormous polarisation in the world. We now have fake news, which we never had before. Who'd even heard of fake news four or five years ago? Now you have no idea what to believe. Any event that happens, you will get multiple different versions of it in the news straight away. And you know, I, I have a great concern that this rite of passage is actually not going to be a positive outcome for the world. And that really worries me because I don't know how many chances we're going to get. And that the next rite of passage the world goes through could be much greater. You know, we've already lost um, over a million people, but if we don't actually learn and grow from this, what's going to happen next time? We don't know. And, and but I, you know, I I have some real worries about that on a personal level. Yeah. Well, I share a lot of your. Well, I want to have hope, and I do have hope, but it's it's not looking. Uh, not looking good right at the moment. But I just wanted to, to ask you a couple more things. Um, when you were starting to talk about the work that you were doing with, with these boys, I think I had one big question and I'm sure people watching and listening would have another. So the first is about, or my question is about safety and what role safety plays in that in, in the sense, are you creating a safe liminal space or by, by design are you creating a space that actually provides risk? And the second is about if, if it's affiliated to any sort of religion, 
doctrine, sort of philosophy or idea? Okay. Well, let's answer them one at a time. Safety. Um, well, there's a bit of a problem here because by definition, liminal space is not supposed to be safe. It is challenging our fundamental beliefs that, that have made us feel safe. Uh, in fact, Robert Moore, one of my favourite authors, talks about liminal space in the process of initiation being the equivalent of psycho-spiritual death and dismemberment. <laughs> what a beautiful line. Yep. <laughs> psycho-spiritual death and dismemberment. And basically what he's saying is all your beliefs are going to be killed and, and cut up and you've got to come back and reinvent yourself and keep going in a new way. You know, can I tell you, when my mother passed away, I relate to that. There's a psycho-spiritual death and dismemberment that comes in because she's never coming back. And that's, she's never coming back. My mother, that's a psycho-spiritual death. And for my father, who's been married for 62 years and his wife is gone and he's now a 90-year-old man on his own at home, it's a complete psycho-spiritual death and dismemberment way greater even than it is for me as a son. So it's inherently not safe. And then um, when I look at uh, um, uh, the Indigenous communities, they may, they may take 20 boys out to do their initiation and only bring back 16. And they'd go, well, that's all right. That's the way it goes. You know, the others didn't come back, weren't supposed to come back. Now, there's not a question, when I create a rite of passage, if we take 20 boys, we need to bring 20 boys back. And, you know, that's the world we live in and I'm not arguing with that, I understand it. Um, however, we also need to create some sense of unsafety or we don't really get into the liminal space of these boys. And when we don't do it, they go out and create their own, unfacilitated, and the danger is they fuck themselves up, as I said. So part of the facilitation of the process for the boys and for the girls is to create something that doesn't necessarily feel safe, but actually is safe. Mm. And one of the aims, and I talk more about the rites of passage for boys, but there's as much on girls, um, but and I can possibly mention it, for the boys, um, part of the, the sense of danger or lack of safety was to humble them. So when they had to go out and kill a lion or jump off a tower, there, there's a humbling that happens and they realise that they're not immortal and that, you know, this is real. And that humbling was very important for them. If we don't humble them, then the danger is that they end up arrogant and entitled. And with the girls, often their challenges um, were around endurance. So they might have to stop all night keeping a fire going or the Mescalero Apache Indian girls had to dance and sing. And for four nights they hardly slept and on the last night they had to dance all night. And the girls went through endurance activities 
And part of it was because certainly in those times, endurance was a serious part of being a woman who was going to have babies and look after children. And that whole endurance thing was a key part of becoming a woman. And, and once again, if we don't do that, then our young women our, our, and our young mothers, if endurance is not something that they are good at coping with, then if they have children, if they, if they have babies, if they have children, it can be a lot harder because they don't necessarily have that natural endurance. So they learn it, but it can be very traumatic in the learning of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yes, our rights of passage have to be safe. And look, one of our biggest problems is creating things that feel dangerous enough and getting past the parents and the schools and whoever we work with. Because everything's got to be safe. You know, there's a book this thick of risk management. And I believe in risk management. I have no desire to kill children or any of that stuff. But when we make life completely safe, we do end up with kids who have minimal, if any, resilience, and we get other problems down the road. So that's a tricky one in creating contemporary rites of passage. And the way we've dealt with it is by creating a feeling of uncertainty slash lack of safety, but actually making sure they are safe. And then in terms of religion and affiliation with religion, um, our thing is we welcome anyone from any religion or not, they can be atheists, they can be whatever religion they want. We're very happy for them to share their stories about what religion has meant for them. What we're not okay with is them then telling the boys or the girls on our programs how they have to be. So if you want to be religious, David, and come on our program, fine. If you want to be not religious, fine. But we won't let you go around and tell people that they have to be religious or not religious because it's about each person finding their own pathway in life. We do often get the question if we're affiliated to any religious organisation. And interestingly, 40, 50 years ago, if you wanted to start a major organisation, you almost had to be affiliated with a religion. Today, if you want to start a major organisation movement, you basically have to not be affiliated with a religion. So our thing is, you know, we're, we, we're affiliated with people and we just want people to find who they are, what's their gifts, what's their path, what's their spirit, and to support that. Yeah. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about the, the adults. I assume when you said that you want the 20 kids to come back, you're also happy for the 20 parents to, to come back as well. Um, well, I'm not always happy, but that's not my choice. Um, yeah. And, and having said that, you know, a lot of the adults we get coming on our programs have never been through a rite of passage themselves by their own, by their own, you know, acknowledgement. And, and, and some of them are clearly in child behaviour and it's very challenging for them. But they also go through a rite of passage and, and our programs change not only the boys and girls, but change their parents and hopefully their community. And that's a proper rite of passage is a community process that impacts and everyone in the community steps up. So as the boy or girl is stepping up to become a young adult, their parents 
have to let them go, have to give them space, but also have to accept that the, the parents have to accept that they're moving more towards the top of the staircase and the mortality event, you know? So that can be challenging for parents yeah. and adults. I would have thought that perhaps your camps and experiences could have been just as touching and beneficial for parents in lots of ways, because obviously this- Yeah, it can. This, it, it sounds like the essential part of what you're doing is not just the teenager going through, or the young adult going through this process, but it's this relationship with that parent, adult, or older feature. It's about as much about the relationship, I gather. That's exactly right. And that is exactly what it's about. And that does shift and change and it has to. Um, that's a core part of the whole process. Yeah. I wonder, I know you, you, you've, you've got, uh, you're pressed for time. So I, can I spend a few more minutes just asking you a couple more questions? Absolutely. I'm having fun. This is like oh, great. stuff well, I love talking about. <laughs> great. Um, I was speaking with my own father yesterday and we were talking about do you know this film, The Social Dilemma? I do. Okay, so for those that, that are watching, listening, that don't know, there's a new documentary or hybrid documentary that is looking at the world that we live in with regards to technology, social media, so forth. And me personally, I think it's a super interesting film. I recommend anybody to, to watch it. Um, and I think it brings up many challenges um, for teenagers, for parents, but also my father brought up a really interesting question yesterday, which is the internet has also challenged his role as, a, as an older person, let's say, who traditionally would have been the person that youth go to as a source of wisdom, as a storyteller. And now on, on the internet, on YouTube, um, the, the sort of that role of humans being storytellers, collectors and passers on, if that's a word, of wisdom and knowledge um, is becoming less and less, which is creating a, another sort of existential issue for, for people as they get older as well. Is that something that you can talk to? Look, there's so many major issues that you've touched on here. The, the whole technology and instead of the children learning from the stories of the elders, they're learning from the stories that they see on the internet is a major problem because the stories on the internet are not designed to give the children what they need. They're designed to sell products and to hook the children in because the more the children are hooked in, the more they're entertained, the more product you can sell. And it's not only children, by the way, it's everyone. And that's got to be a major problem in itself. And then I'm very interested in the loss of elders in our lives and the impact that that has and the role of elders. So, so we are one community. We're not, we're not segments of children, adults, elders. We actually all need to be heavily interacting together to create the healthiest biosystem. And when you separate it into its parts, you have problems. And, and what we're losing by not having the elders is um, the, the role of the elders was, first of all, to spend time with the young. And there's a saying that, for example, grandparents and grandchildren have a special bond. And that's partly because they have a common enemy. But, you know, 
having said that, when the elders and the young spend time together, it creates space for the adults in the middle to go out and do their own thing. And, and the elders, you know, look at my father. He so loves being with the grandchildren. He just adores it. And when they get together, when the old and the young get together, there's some important things that happen. The first is that the young gain wisdom from the elders by hearing their stories and by letting the elders teach them. And that's what the young need. They need wisdom. And the elders gain energy. And that's what they need. You know, I see it when, my, when the grandchildren come and visit my father who's 90, He'll have put them a microscope and he'll have books and the stuff and they'll listen for hours and he'll be rolling around on the floor chatting and talking and laughing and it's just the most beautiful thing. The other thing is the, the young are seen by the elders. They see their beauty, they see their gifts, they see their talents and that's something the young need. They need to be seen. Whereas often the parents are too busy, too distracted, too stressed or whatever. So the young get seen. And the elders have a purpose, which is so important for them. And then the other thing that healthy elders do in a community is in terms of with the adults, they mentor them in their roles because the elders have been there before. And they also keep them in check. <laughs> and when the, when the elders are not there, the adults are not being mentored, so they're just sort of trying to make it up as they go and making mistakes and things along the way because they're, they're not learning from the past. doesn't mean they have to do what the elders tell them, but they at least get to listen. And the other thing is when the adults are not kept in check, they can become megalomaniacs and think it's all about them and want to take over the world. And because we have rejected elders from our communities and it's all about being young, forever young, and we worship youth, the elders have basically excused themselves. And they're on the golf course, so they're off in their RVs travelling around the country. Or even worse, they've been put in old people's homes. And that's terrible. So our whole elder management is disastrous. Um, and it creates problems right through the whole community. Mm. Yeah. I... And if I can say, you know, we have an election happening at the moment uh, and, and we have elders running positions of power. And I don't believe they should be. Whatever you say about their politics, we should have adults in their 40s and maybe 50s in the power position and the elders should be mentoring and supporting them rather than at mid to late 70s taking on the positions of power and all the energy it's needed to do that. It's just, it's just not appropriate. It's not appropriate. So, I, I couldn't agree with you more on, on pretty much everything you've said today, but you know, on, that, on that particular thing as well. It seems in many yeah. ways, so many things are tipped upside down and hopefully yeah. uh, things will, will somehow level out. And, and honestly, I think that, I'm not saying that this podcast and what I'm doing is contributing, or but these discussions, I'm realizing more and more that they are absolutely essential. And they're hard, they're hard to get these voices out there because these are long form discussions and they won't, you know, this isn't clickbait. This, you know, isn't something you can digest in 
two minutes between something. You actually actually have to sit and listen. And, and I do hope that 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 not just through this podcast, but your voice gets out there because I think these are all essential things that 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 you're talking about. Um, they are, but I just need to say they are contributing. You know, the more people who have this voice, and I know because of the work I'm involved in, that more and more people are talking about this stuff, are looking for this stuff. And that happens by all of us doing the bit that we can do. Yeah. What would you say would be the biggest or one of the biggest challenges that young adults are facing today? My assumption would be that it's technology, Facebook, social media. Is that how you see it? Oh, partly. I mean, that is definitely going to have to be a a huge thing. But that has just come in to fill a void. So so the void was there first. Right. And and technology, social media has come in to fill that void. I, I think it goes back to a bigger problem of community breakdown and community division. You know, I talked about how all parts of the community should be involved and we've separated. And, and, I'll, and I'll finish with a, um, a story about this. So I gave, a, uh, I gave some talks at music festivals on whether this music festival is a rite of passage. And the first one I gave was at the Rainbow Serpent Festival in Victoria. Then I gave the same workshop at um, Lost Paradise at Peach Ridge, Sydney. And then I gave it at Woodford Folk Festival. And the two I want to talk about are Peach Ridge and Woodford Folk Festival. So Peach Ridge, everyone is between 20 and 25 years of age, 98% of the people there. And I was in the, the speakers area camping and we had to walk through the general campsite to get to the food area every day. And everyone's between 20 and 25 years of age. After about two or three days, the place started to look like a 20 to 25 year old's bedroom who was on a party bender. Like, it stank. And there was bags of fly-blown rubbish all over the ground. And there were empty cans and beer bottles and, and cigarette butts and mouldy food. It was really gross. It was disgusting. It was really disturbing, actually, what happened. And it was all 20, 25-year-olds. The next year, I gave the same talk at the Woodford Folk Festival And at Woodford Folk Festival, which is a huge festival, everyone from babies to grandparents and and elders are there. And when I would walk through that campsite at 7 o'clock in the morning, the children would be sleeping over in a little area together. And the adults are doing whatever, and there'd be a few people walking around sweeping up the area, keeping it tidy, and someone else would be fixing up the tarpaulin. And the campsites were beautiful, and people would have decorated them, and, and you could see that there was a whole diversity happening because they were all together. And the final example of that is if you go into an old people's home, which is just old people, what's the first thing you notice? The smell. And when we break up our communities into isolated groups all at the same stage, it doesn't work well. That's when we create... It smells, and that's when we create a void which gets filled with something else. In a lot of the elderly, it's gambling and pokies and wasting money. In the young, it's technology, whatever. 
when when you go to a place like Woodford, which is people of all different ages and activities for people of all different ages, you see less technology than anywhere else. Yes, people still have their phones, but they don't have them in front of their faces the whole time because you actually have a healthy ecosystem. And we need to get back to a healthy ecosystem or those things that fill in the void will just completely take over. Hmm. All power to you. Thank you for the chat. Thanks for ending that way because it's, it, I mean, this was a really powerful discussion for me and I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. I think it's never been more important. I myself, well, I, a lot of the time I feel like I'm in a constant transition of liminal space, but I'm also in, a, in, 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 in this period of my own space and reaching out to people like you um, is both a very important thing for myself as well. So I thank you for your time. I'm sure so many people are going to appreciate your words and I will um, leave a link to the Rites of Passage Institute underneath this, uh, this discussion for anybody that's, that's, uh, that's interested. So yeah, thank you so much. And I hope one day we get the, the chance when uh, the world opens up a little bit more. We're in the same country, but we can't cross borders to, uh, to meet in person. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast and thank you for what you're doing. Our pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Many thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. And go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again and see you next time in Aliminal Space. Mm -hmm.